Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Come in, everybody. Episode six. Of the America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast presented. By Betfred Sportsbook, it is Monday, November 21st, 2022. People, first of all, I want to wish my little sister a happy birthday. She is absolutely not listening today, but hey, it's the thought that counts. That's what they say anyway. With that said, we do have a loaded episode on a Monday of the Aaron Torres pod. We will start with football, the chaos of Saturday, Tennessee's loss. What does it mean for the playoff picture? We discussed that. From there, I do want to kind of talk Michigan, Ohio State. Neither team looks very good. What does it mean? Or neither team played very well at the very least on Saturday. What does it mean for this weekend? We will talk about USC's thrilling win over UCLA. Is Caleb Williams now the new Heisman favorite? And we'll wrap with what was actually a very busy weekend in college basketball. Obviously, on Sunday night, Kentucky played in Spokane against Gonzaga. Do want to preview the Maui Invitational just a little bit. Uh, and then we will get out of here. couple scheduling notes before we get into today's show. One, we will have a Tuesday episode of the pod. I kind of want to talk about, I want to preview the rest of Feast Week in college basketball. We have the Battle for Atlantis. We have the PK-85 events. Tell you what you need to know about them. Obviously, anything else that happens on Monday, we'll discuss that as well. And then after that, it's going to be kind of, we'll just kind of see. Just keep your feeds locked and loaded. Make sure you're subscribed, Apple, Spotify, etc. I will drop a new show at some point in the week, just not sure when. And oh, by the way, if you're not subscribed, not only on Apple or Spotify, make sure to hit the YouTube subscribe button. Really would help me. Bottom line, we're closing in on 15K. As the kids say, road to 15K. So proud of how much we have grown the Aaron Torres Pod YouTube channel. So make sure to subscribe. If you're already subscribed, tell a friend. If your friend's already subscribed, have them tell a friend. Oh, by the way, if you got a second or third email, subscribe as well. It really does help the podcast grow. With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, I'll just be blunt. I say it all the time, but there may have never been a better example than this weekend. What I always say, what a lot of people that love college football always say is this. The weekends that on paper don't look like there's very much going on. Those are the ones that always end up being the craziest, right? And Saturday was the best example yet as just look 
at everything that happened within the top 10 of college football. TCU needs a miracle sprint on walk-off field goal to survive against Baylor. USC, obviously that thrilling three-point win over UCLA. Uh, Michigan, three fourth-quarter field goals after their star running back Blake Corum goes down. We'll talk about Michigan and Ohio State. Ohio State, oh, by the way, uh, took care of business, but Maryland had the ball with under a minute to go and a chance to win. Georgia did not look great against Kentucky. So you have all of these chaotic games that are essentially coming down to the wire. But it is worth noting that there really was only one that really impacted the playoff race. But it was the one that had more impact than maybe any other loss could have. And it was Tennessee losing to South Carolina. And I think that's what speaks to how crazy this weekend was, right? Is that we came in talking about all these crazy hypotheticals. Can Illinois keep things close against Michigan? Um, You know, is USC going to lose to UCLA as a slight favorite? TCU was a small favorite against Baylor. This was the only game that we were not talking about. Tennessee, South Carolina. I did not hear anybody all week long make the strong case that Tennessee was going to go to South Carolina and lose. Only that is exactly what happened. And they lost in just the most shocking way possible with a final score of 63 to 38. Now, in terms of why it happened, right? It's pretty straightforward. I think we all know the answers. We all knew that Tennessee's defense was not elite throughout most of the year, but I do think they played really well for big stretches against good teams. They held Kentucky to six points. They had a couple other really good games throughout the early part of the season, but obviously Georgia exposed some stuff. And then this game against South Carolina was just unreal. Um, Sometimes you have those nights. Spencer Rattler had one of those nights for South Carolina, but this much maligned Tennessee defense could not get stops, not only when it mattered, but pretty much at any point in the game. How about this for a fact? Spencer Rattler came into the game with eight total touchdown passes. He had six against Tennessee, and that was essentially how the game shook out. South Carolina scores 21 first quarter points, 35 first half points. Uh, Tennessee made it interesting late, interesting in the middle of the third quarter. I mean, it was about 35-31 at one point in the third quarter. South Carolina scores a few minutes later, and the game is essentially over. And so what I want to do now, listen, we're going to talk about Tennessee kind of to wrap this segment. So if you're a Vol fan, one, I don't even know if you're listening on a day like today, but I want to get to the Tennessee aspect of this in a minute. But I do kind of just want to talk about what this means for the playoff picture, because this has major, major, major ramifications. I think you can argue this was the single, not only the most surprising result that we could have had, but I think this is also realistically probably the one result that caused the most chaos in the playoff picture. And let me explain why. You know, all those crazy hypotheticals. This is, let me, let me even backtrack. The reason this result was so big. Okay. So let, let's transition from the game itself to what it means in the bigger picture. Because what I would say right now at this moment in time is this why this is so important, why this game, why this result is bigger than Michigan losing, Ohio State losing. Um, Whoever losing, everybody had pretty much a linear path, right? If Georgia wins, they're in. If 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 uh, uh, Ohio State wins, they're in. If Michigan wins, they're in. If TCU wins, they're in. Meanwhile, there's Clemson and USC. They're teams that needed help going into today. Tennessee, to me, why this is so interesting is because you know all of those crazy 
college football playoff hypotheticals that we spent all November, all October, early December discussing, Tennessee was really the inflection point of all of those conversations. Why? Because it's what I just said. They were the team that had, they, they weren't the, the, the very clear win in their in. They're not the very clear they need help. They were somewhere in the middle and they had what was shaping up to be the most unique resume in college football. If they just won out, if they just won at South Carolina and Vanderbilt next week, they would have had just a fascinating resume going into the final few weeks of the season because two factors for them that are really not factors for anyone else, or or, or it was just unique with Tennessee. Let me put it that way. It was unique for Tennessee because I think regardless of how everything shook out, of all of the teams that would have been fighting for that third, fourth, fifth spot, third and fourth spot, maybe on the outside looking in, they would have had the best resume. They would have had a win at LSU, which is almost certainly going to finish nine and three and the SEC runner up. I don't think they're beating Georgia. They, of course, could be the SEC champ. Tennessee had beaten them. And of course, Tennessee had the win over Bama. That is a resume that would have been better than TCU, even if TCU wins out. It would have been better than USC, even if USC wins out. It would have been better than Clemson, even if Clemson won out. And so on the one hand, they would have had the most interesting resume. On the other hand, they would not have had something that all of those other schools would have needed to get to the college football playoff. They wouldn't have been a conference champ. And so if you like chaos and if you like argument and if you like debate, you wanted Tennessee to win because we were setting up for a very real scenario where we had a one-loss Tennessee versus a one-loss USC that's a Pac-12 champ with an inferior resume or a one-loss Clemson with an inferior resume or maybe a TCU losing in the conference championship game. And so I bring it up because all of those crazy conversations really spurned from one simple thing. It was Tennessee winning out, being 11-1, and having wins over LSU and Bama, their only loss being to the number one team in the country on the road, And so because they're gone now, it really kind of clears up the playoff picture, right? I'm not a a religious person, but something about parting the Red Sea. Well, now the Red Sea is pretty clearly open. And so let's just briefly talk about who are the biggest winners and what this all means for the playoff picture. What this means, I think the biggest winner from Tennessee's loss, the single biggest winner to me is the USC Trojans, because now the USC Trojans win and you're in if you're USC. Right now, I think we all assume the top three spots in the college football playoff picture are pretty straightforward. Georgia, assuming they win out, right? Georgia Tech and then LSU in the title game, I think they're going to win out, SEC title game. The winner of Ohio State-Michigan is going to get the two seed. And then three, I think most of us kind of feel like, okay, TCU, if they win out, is going to get that three seed. So the big debate, again, was number four, Tennessee versus USC, Tennessee versus this, Tennessee versus that. Well, Tennessee's out of the picture. It moves everybody up. And now USC, it's pretty straightforward. If you win your final two games, you are going to make the college football playoff playoff in year one under Lincoln Riley. Now, is that going to happen? It's not going to be easy. Next week, they do play Notre Dame at the Coliseum. Notre Dame all of a sudden is playing really well. Obviously, a few weeks ago, took care of Clemson. We all criticized Marcus Freeman early, myself included. But he has done a good job of rallying the troops at Notre Dame. They're going to enter this week as a top 15 team. And this is a team 
that since that 0-2 start, not great at math, but they're 8-3 right now, which means they've won 8 of 9. They won against Clemson at home. They beat Syracuse. They took care of BYU and North Carolina, which came into yesterday with just one loss. So to me, USC is the big winner in all of this because, again, they're the team now that gets bumped up where if they win, the path is there, they are getting in. The real biggest winner, though, I think USC is probably the, the biggest winner. But the team that's really like like got to be feeling good about that loss, and I hate to say it, it's actually South Carolina's biggest rival, Clemson, because Clemson was the team that coming into Saturday, there was no direct path. They, even as a 12-1 ACC champ, they were a team that was going to need help, especially because, oh, by the way, the team that they play in the ACC championship game, North Carolina, which was in the top 15, took a loss last night. So now all of a sudden you look at Clemson's resume. Their best win is probably going to be over a 9-3 and Florida State team that's on the fringes of the top 25. We'll see if North Carolina beats, uh, I believe it's NC State this weekend. If they do, they'll probably be on the fringes of the top 25. But Clemson's really not going to have a resume comparable to even a TCU. I would argue even a USC. And so Clemson's the one that needed help. They needed chaos in front of them, and they got it on Saturday night. So to me, Clemson is the biggest winner out of everybody on Saturday with this Tennessee loss. Really quickly, you know who else is sort of a pretty big winner? It is the loser of the Ohio State-Michigan game, especially, by the way, if it's Ohio State. As a matter of fact, going back to Clemson for half a second, and I know I'm bouncing around USC here, Tennessee there, Clemson here. Here's the bottom line with Clemson. Clemson got the first really big break in their conversation for the playoff. Now, they still need help. They probably need a TCU to lose a game or USC to lose before the end of the regular season. But you know what Clemson really needs? Clemson needs Ohio State to beat Michigan, and let me explain why. It's because of that team that I just mentioned that is going to the L.A. Coliseum this weekend to play USC. It's Notre Dame. Remember, where did Notre Dame open its season? They opened it in Columbus at the Horseshoe against Ohio State. And so that's important because Ohio State has a win over the same Notre Dame team that smacked Clemson. And so for Clemson, if Ohio State were to lose to Michigan, it would almost assuredly guarantee Michigan a playoff spot. But then also Ohio State's probably in the pecking order ahead of you. So to me, if you're a Clemson fan, you are rooting hard for your Clemson Tigers this weekend and you are rooting hard for Ohio State. Because if Ohio State gets the two seed, I actually think Clemson probably has the better resume than a Michigan would as an 11-1 non-Big Ten champ. So that's kind of the setup that's what you need to know. Michigan and Ohio State, I do think the loser was probably helped a little bit. I, I, I still think they're going to be behind Clemson in the race for an at-large. So I think especially if the loser is Michigan, ultimately you need chaos. You need TCU to lose in the conference championship game. You need USC to lose, which by the way, I still think is in the, on the cards. USC has Notre Dame and then probably playing Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. But overall, the biggest winners, no doubt to me, USC winning your in. Clemson needed chaos. They got it. And I would argue the winner, the loser, excuse me, of the Ohio State-Michigan game was actually helped by this as well.
All right, really quickly, I would be remiss if I didn't hit on things just strictly from the Tennessee perspective. We obviously just talked about what their loss means, but I got to be real, man. I, I do feel bad for Tennessee. I obviously feel terrible for Hennon Hooker. And this is just in a season that was really a dream season. This is just such a brutal, brutal way to end things. And let me start by saying this. Listen, we're going to talk about the Tennessee perspective as a team in a minute. I hope whether you're a Tennessee fan or a Bama fan or a Georgia fan or a Kentucky fan or whoever, this ten- this Hendon Hooker news is just awful, man. I mean, this guy has been such a great story for college football. And to see it end this way is just, it- it's brutal, right? Because just think about who Hendon Hooker is, what he's about, what he's overcome to get to this point. This was a guy that apparently got beat out at Virginia Tech. I'm not totally sure why transfers to Tennessee without a guarantee that he's going to start. And as a matter of fact, he is not the starter when he gets to Tennessee. Joe Milton is Joe Milton struggles. They put in hen and hooker and it is like lightning in a bottle. This guy is unbelievable. Leads Tennessee to an unexpected seven and five season this year. And despite how it ended Saturday night, this was a guy that had the Tennessee volunteers in a season after he arrived 35 players leave following the Jeremy Pruitt departure Hendon Hooker had Tennessee in the high in the college football playoff conversation. And so this is one of the great stories. This is one of the great resiliency stories. And so to find out on Sunday that he has obviously torn the ACL and missed the rest of the season, it's just such a disappointment. You hate to see a great season end like that. I wish him a speedy recovery. And I'll tell you this. This is not the last we talk about Hendon Hooker on this show because as the NFL draft gets closer and as those scouts and GMs talk about the quarterbacks and they get to see the quarterbacks and know the quarterbacks. I guarantee you this guy is going to move up draft boards. And even with the injury, I guarantee he is going to be in the first round discussion. And I look forward to seeing what's next for Hennon Hooker, because I believe that the best is still yet to come for this kid. Now, from the Tennessee perspective, I just got to say, man, I, I, I do feel bad for Tennessee. And I get if you're not a Tennessee fan, you can feel bad for Hendon Hooker without feeling bad for Tennessee and its fans. But I do, man, and I'll tell you why. Because coming into the year, I think if you had told most people that you'd be 9-2 and going into Thanksgiving weekend, every Tennessee fan would take it. But now, here's the crazy part. You're 9-2, and and you had the whole season ahead of you if you had just won out. And so, yeah, you're 9-2, and and if it was August, you would have taken 9-2. and But the problem is you're 9-2, and and now you have the context behind it. You're 9-2 and in a year where you entered the third Saturday in in November at 9-1 and one overall. Yeah, the Heisman Trophy favorite, I still believe, coming into this weekend. And all you had to do was beat South Carolina and beat Vanderbilt, and you're probably going to the college football playoff. Now, what happens when you get there? I don't know. Do you win it? Do you revenge? get the revenge against Georgia? I don't know. But to have that in year two of the Josh Heupel here, it would have been incredible. And so to have it all unfold the way that it did, I do feel bad for Tennessee fans because you came into Saturday, all you had to do was beat South Carolina, all you had to do was beat Vandy, and you're in the conversation. If you get left out, then that's a different deal, and we could have discussed that had it gotten that far. But it's just it's just such a buzzkill because you have this incredible season. It's probably going to end at 10-2, and two, although nothing's guaranteed without Hendon Hooker and against a, a, a suddenly red-hot Vanderbilt team. But now, all of a sudden... That incredible season just feels empty, right? 
Because it's one thing if you let, let's just say they win next week and you finish 10 and 2. But it's one thing if, if you finish 10 and 2, but you're nowhere close to Bama and you're nowhere close to Georgia and you're a good 10 and 2, but you just aren't elite. But when you beat LSU on the road, when you beat Alabama, it just feels like we might actually do this. And even when we lose to Georgia, we still got this incredible resume with these incredible wins, one really good loss, and the season is still in front of us. Now you're nine and two. Even if you beat Vanderbilt, it's just going to be one of those what ifs. So I feel bad for Tennessee fans. I wish you nothing but the best. I hope that when this all shakes out, maybe a Sugar Bowl appearance. I don't know. Maybe an Orange Bowl, New Year's Day, six appear, New Year's six appearance. I hope. But it's just hard to sit there and say, man, the whole season was in front of us. Everything was in front of us. A playoff, a potential national championship, a Heisman Trophy. And now it's all gone. All right, this is what I want to do. I do want to take a quick break. want to come back. And I want to hit on the Ohio State-Michigan angle both teams survive neither team looks good what does it mean for this weekend we'll take a quick break we'll be right back all right we're gonna get back to the show in a minute but before we do i want to welcome back our presenting sponsor betfred sportsbook and the betfred sportsbook app Listen, by now, I've told you the story, but I'm going to keep telling it because I love telling the story of Betfred. Started in the UK in 1967 with over 1,600 shops in the UK. They are one of the most respected sports books overseas and in Europe. And here's the best part. They have come to the United States and made a major splash. They are not only the presenting sponsor of all things Aaron Torres Media, but oh, by the way, also the presenting gambling sponsor of the Cincinnati Bengals, the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos. And what I love about Betfred, they do more for their betters and more for their customers than anybody going. I've told you before, but we sent our listeners to the Denver Broncos VIP tailgate. Stay tuned. Your boy Torres may be in Cincinnati for a Bengals game. Could I bring some of you with me? There's only one way to find out. Stay tuned to this show and, of course, download the Betfred Sportsbook app and uh, hang out with Betfred. They are awesome. I love working with them. And here is the best part about Betfred. They are offering listeners of the Aaron Torres pod the best deal going in sports betting. Bet $250 on any game this weekend. You like Michigan over Ohio State, Ohio State over Michigan, Clemson over South Carolina, Kentucky over Louisville. I don't care who you bet. But you bet 50, you get 250 in free bets, courtesy of the Betfred Sportsbook. It is the best offer going. Take advantage right now and tell them Torres sent you. Bet 50, get 250 in free bets. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
All right, everybody. Now I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I uh, do want to switch gears and not, not really switch gears, just kind of continue the college football playoff conversation because we just talked about Tennessee. Obviously, what their loss meant for the playoff picture, not only for them, but for everybody else. But there were two teams among, frankly, many on on Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening that did survive, did not look good in the process, but now we get to look ahead a little bit. And so I want to talk about two teams that uh, have quite a bit in common and quite a bit at stake next week. I'm, of course, talking about Michigan and Ohio State. To their credit, both teams survive. Both teams are undefeated. And boy, oh boy, do we have a mega showdown next Saturday in Columbus each team is 11 and 0. The winner all but guaranteed a college football playoff spot. As a matter of fact, I think it is a guarantee, even if they were to somehow lose in the Big Ten championship game, which they're not going to. I do still think the winner would get in, but neither team looked good. And so what I want to do is talk about each team and kind of decipher, okay, which one of the two should we be more worried about after uninspired performances by each on Saturday? And so I'll just kind of give you, for those of you who weren't able to kind of watch the games minute by minute, second by second, frame by frame, play by play, I'll just give you a quick recap of what happened for each. Michigan was the early game, so let's start with Michigan. And they were kind of an interesting deal, right? Because they were playing an Illinois team that really kind of mirrored them in terms of style of play. Illinois, Michigan, uh, you know, they they make your grandfather very proud is what I would tell you. Uh, Each wants to run the ball. Each wants to control the clock. Each wants to control the line of scrimmage. Each wants to play great defense. And so you kind of saw the scenario where if everything broke the right way, it could be a little bit competitive late. But obviously the one thing that we couldn't see was Michigan star player Blake Corum, who was very much in the Heisman Trophy candidate, running back, one of the leading rushers in college football, went down late in the second quarter with an injury. Thankfully, he did return to the game. As of right now, we don't have much of a status on him, but he returns for one play, does not play the rest of the game, and Michigan's offense basically disappears without him. At one point, they actually trail 17-10. to 10. They trail 17-10 to 10 going into the fourth quarter, and to their credit, they do find a way to win under very adverse conditions. Um, you know, they haven't developed a run, a, a pass game all year, which is something we're probably going to talk about throughout the week on this show. But don't have your star running back, don't have much of a pass game, rely a lot on special teams and defense. Jake Moody, the kicker, uh, Lou Groza award winner, Jim Harbaugh was gushing about this guy after the game. I'm going to go full LeBron James, not one, not two, but three fourth quarter field goals for Jake Moody. So Michigan relies on its defense, on its special teams. I'd say this, you ask Brett Bielema. He says they relied on the refs too. Some questionable calls go in Michigan's favor, but they do survive to improve to 11 and 0 next week. Then there's Ohio State. Ohio State kicked off shortly after that Michigan Illinois game went final. And to be blunt, it was kind of the Iowa uh, Ohio State team that we've seen all year. Offense is kind of sort of not really clicking. They actually trail 13 to 10 at halftime, get going in the second half. Now to be fair to Ohio State, I have to be fair here, right? Michigan deal with the Blake Corum injury. Ohio State is dealing with injuries of its own, and I want to make that clear. Travion Henderson, their star running back, this poor kid has not been right most of the year, did try to play, was not great early, left the game, did not return. I I didn't see it, but I was told he was in a walking boot for parts of the game or when he left the stadium. So he was banged up. Obviously, they haven't had a star wide receiver in Jackson Smith and Jigba all year. Now, obviously, Marvin Harrison and Emeka Buka have stepped up. 
but it doesn't change the fact that Ohio State's dealing with injuries too. It also doesn't change the fact that they very much struggled at Maryland. As I said, they were trailing at halftime 13-10, were able to rally. They actually took a three-point lead late into the fourth quarter, kick a field goal, but it's worth noting, Maryland gets the ball back with under a minute to go. Maryland, by the way, actually outgained Ohio State as well in this game. Maryland gets the ball back to the credit of Ohio State's defensive front. There is a strip sack return for a touchdown. And so all of a sudden, a six-point lead becomes a 13-point lead, and that game looks way more one-sided than it actually was. And so now the question becomes, who are you more worried about? Michigan, which, again, barely survives against Illinois, or Ohio State, which barely survives against Maryland? And to me, the answer is actually pretty simple. Now, we don't know about injury statuses. But if Blake Corum came back into that game yesterday on Saturday, I'm optimistic that he'll be able to play. And if he's able to play, I'll just be blunt. I'm much more concerned about Ohio State. Now, that's not me sitting here on a Sunday into a Monday telling you that Ohio State is definitively going to lose to Michigan. But what concerns me about Ohio State, it's the kind of the simple, you know what it, you know what it honestly reminds me of? It reminds me of that old saying like, I think your parents probably tell you that in in middle school when you have somebody bullying you or you have a friend that turns into an enemy. What do your parents always tell you? When somebody shows you who they are, believe them, right? Isn't that kind of Ohio State this year? Because just think about it at the most basic level, right? Think about Ohio State this year. They come into the year, and we're talking about them as potentially having a historically great offense. Now, I understand Jackson Smith and Jigba's hurt. I understand Travion Henderson's been in and out of the lineup all year. But you go through the Ohio State schedule, I would argue in three separate instances, including the two best defenses they've played, they have really struggled offensively this year. Go back to the Iowa game, middle of the season. I believe they were coming off a bye at that point. You're sitting there saying, okay, Ohio State, off of a bye. It's really going to click. Yeah, Iowa's defense is okay, very good maybe even, but that offense is so bad it's not going to matter. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. But not before Ohio State was pretty underwhelming. Ohio State, to the credit of its defense, forced a few turnovers. They forced a few punts. Ohio State continues to get the ball back, continues to kind of make, you know, create some offense, but not a ton. Five separate times in the first half against Iowa, Ohio State was unable to punch the ball into the end zone, had to settle for five field goals in the first half. Now, eventually... Iowa's defense was just on the field for so long that they got overwhelmed and just didn't have enough gas in the tank and the game got one-sided. But that was far from a vintage performance from Ohio State. Nobody's nobody's making instructional videos on their offense to sell on eBay or, or YouTube or Craigslist or whatever, okay? And yes, I just referenced Craigslist, which I'm pretty sure nobody other than, you know, uh, whatever. Nobody's used Craigslist in a long time, but you get the point. The offense was not good that day. You know what else the offense wasn't good? Against the best team Ohio State's played so far. Against Penn State, we talked about it. This was a team that struggled. They trailed 21 to 16 late in the or middle of the fourth quarter is really the fair way to say it, about nine minutes to go. And that was when all that chaos broke loose, right? Um, you know, that that was the game where there was the the this, the that, there's a strip sack, there's an INT by the defensive lineman, JT Tui Mualo. I don't know how to say his name. I apologize. I just bring it up to say that in that game. Ohio State was very much on the ropes until Penn State completely fell apart late. And then there was Saturday where once again, in a big game, they struggled to move the ball for big chunks and struggled to survive in that game. So that's what Ohio State's issues are. They've shown you who they are. 
They're up, they're down, they're inconsistent. They, they just it had the offense just hasn't felt consistent all year, even though they put up a lot of points. Now, Michigan, on the other hand, they've shown you who they are too. Now, their ceiling isn't as high as Ohio State, and that's why I'm not sitting here on a Sunday or a Monday definitively telling you Ohio State is losing to Michigan next week. No, I I think it's a little too early to tell, and we'll get into that in a minute. But with Michigan, they've shown you who they are too, and I would argue until Blake Corum's injury on Saturday, they were the most consistent team in college football. They're going to run the ball right at you with Blake Corum, with that offensive line. They are going to play great defense. They are going to have incredible special teams with Jake Moody, who knock on wood has been incredible this year, including Saturday in the clutch. And they're not going to let J.J. McCarthy beat him. Now, there, there is an argument that their quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, at some point they're going to have to let him loose, right? The whole reason he won the job was because we were told he has higher upside than the guy that he beat out, Cade McNamara. Now, Cade McNamara is injured, so it doesn't matter. He would have been playing anyway. But we've been told that this guy was the X factor, and he, we, we haven't really seen that so far this year. But at the same time, Michigan has shown you who they are. They're going to run. They're going to play great defense. And as I've said, I think they're the most consistent team in college football this year. Even Georgia. Georgia struggled on the road against Missouri. Georgia wasn't great on Saturday against Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky was driving. They scored to make it 16-6. They convert the two-point conversion. It is a one-score game in the middle of the fourth quarter. So Michigan, up until Blake Corum gets hurt, they've been the same team every single week. And I do think at a certain point, now listen, can Ohio State elevate themselves for this incredible game, rivalry game, whatever? Yes, they can. But I also think like at a, at a certain point, if 11 straight weeks, you have been largely inconsistent, especially since Big Ten play started, you're probably just an inconsistent football team. And so listen, here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, we're going to break down this game later on in the week, and we'll get into all the, the details, and I'll be blunt. Right now, it's hard to definitively pick a winner because we don't know the status of Blake Corum. We don't know the status of Travion Henderson. I want to watch the weather report because, obviously, if it's cold and icy like it was last year, that's Advantage Michigan. The early report is it's going to be pretty cold uh, precipitation in the morning, little rain, maybe even a little bit snow, and that is a noon Eastern kickoff. So I'm not sitting here saying that Michigan's definitively going to win. But if you ask me after yesterday who I'm more concerned about going into this game, it's the one that has been inconsistent all year. It's Ohio State. And I am so fascinated to watch this game on Saturday. This should be a good one. Both teams are 11-0. But there are plenty of questions. All right, take a quick break. Come back. One final football segment. We'll talk that USC-UCLA game then we'll switch gears to basketball. Kentucky and Gonzaga played on Sunday night. Uh, in addition, also keep in mind, we got the Maui Invitational starting today on Monday. So we'll take a quick break. One more basketball, se- uh, one more football segment, switch to basketball. We will get out of here. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back the sponsor of the Aaron Torres Pod NFL Pick'em Challenge, Bracket Phonetics. By now, I've told you all about Bracket Fanatics, love working with them, have worked with them on multiple NCAA tournaments, and this year they started a weekly NFL Pick'em Challenge just for listeners of the Aaron Torres Pod. Here's what you got to do to take advantage. Go to BracketFanatics.com, join Bracket. When you join the Bracket, the Bracket is named Torres. Do that, and you're automatically to enter to win certain prizes. What are those prizes, you're probably wondering? Well, first prize is this thousand dollar season long cash prize so you make picks every single week just pick every single game winner and loser that's all you got to do 
the winner with the most picks over the course of the season, $1,000 season-long cash prize. But here is the great part. In addition to the $1,000 season-long cash prize, we're still given $100 weekly cash prizes in case you have not signed up yet. And so if you have not signed up yet, again, go to BracketFanatics.com, join Bracket, Bracket name Torres, and you will automatically be entered to win $100 weekly cash prizes. We have obviously to this point had 10 weekly winners. Congrats to all the weekly winners so far. We will name our week 11 winner later in this week. Thank you to Bracket Fanatics, our sponsor of our Aaron Torres pod, NFL Pick'em Challenge. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final football segment of the show. So good to be back. And I do want to go ahead and wrap with what was actually probably the most entertaining game of the day, right? Like we've had, we had games with more implications in terms of the Tennessee game, uh, more questions with Ohio State, Michigan, maybe even TCU, I don't know that there was just more a more fun game to watch if you just like back and forth, up and down football. Now, keep in mind, this ain't your grandfather's Big Ten football uh, with USC and UCLA. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, but final score at the Rose Bowl, 48 to 45. Again, wildly entertaining. Two great offenses. I will, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like they were not two incredibly flawed defenses. But with the victory, there is a lot to talk about as USC, as we just discussed, now in control of their own playoff destiny. I want to talk about Caleb Williams' Heisman Trophy candidacy, and more important, the fact that Lincoln Riley just has this program so far ahead of schedule. It is unbelievable. In terms of the game itself, listen, you don't need me to go play-by-play, minute-by-minute, quarter-by-quarter, because if I did, we'd be here until March breaking it all down. When the score is 48-45. When the over-under is set at 76 in the Betfred Sportsbook and it goes over by close to three touchdowns, you know it was insanity. But listen, we knew this is what this game could could evolve into. Two great quarterbacks, two great offensive minds and Chip Kelly and obviously Lincoln Riley. uh, And two incredibly flawed defenses, like I said, this is what we are going to get. But in terms of why USC ended up winning this game, It's really, frankly, the reason that they've won all their games this year is they now sit at 10-1 and and, again, control their own playoff destiny. The defense isn't great, but they force a crap ton of turnovers, and they have Caleb Williams, and you do not. And if you want to know the blueprint as to how USC got to this point, that is exactly it, and that is exactly what could ultimately get them to the playoff this year. In terms of the first part, listen, I remember talking about this back in September. 
I remember talking about this when USC went on the road to Oregon State in about week four, week five. And what I said was everybody is focused on the point totals and the total defense allowed. And I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat it and pretend that they got the dudes that Georgia's got or the dudes that Michigan's got or the dudes that Alabama or Ohio State have. But what I said at the time and what has rang true through 11 weeks of this season They are an opportunistic defense, and there is more than one way to be productive on defense and win when you have a quarterback that good. Well, fast forward to Saturday night. Did you see what USC's defense did? Yes, they gave up a crap ton of yardage. Yes, they gave up a crap ton of points, but they made a couple of huge plays when they absolutely needed to. They actually had not one but two picks shortly before the half. One of them led directly to a field goal to give USC a slight lead at the time. By the way, what was the final score? It was 48 to 45. You think that field goal mattered? It did, and it was set up by the defense. And oh, by the way, keep in mind also that the final play of the game that sealed the victory, it wasn't the final play, but the final play of the game for UCLA that sealed the victory was an interception as well. So this is who USC has been all year, and we have to give them credit, man. Listen, you could talk about total points allowed, you know, points allowed, total defense. I'm not going to sit here and defend the the stats that they have, but oh, by the way, this is year one. But at the end of the day, this is how they've won games. The stats are incredible. So I looked it up. They have forced 24 total turnovers in 11 games. That is really impressive. That is top five in the country. More importantly, And this is important. They have only turned the ball over four times themselves all year. So when you're plus 20 in turnover margin, that is going to put you in position to win a lot of games, especially when you have a guy named Caleb Williams at quarterback. And so let's get into Caleb Williams here because I'll just say this. Listen, I think there's been kind of a groundswell in the last few weeks, really. And I don't mean to make light of the Hendon Hooker situation because obviously the news is so awful. We just talked about it. But why I bring it up is because of the fact that I I think since Hendon Hooker, you know, the the loss to George, I think people have been trying to figure out, okay, who's really the Heisman favorite? favorite? Is it C.J. Stroud? Does Drake May from North Carolina have an argument? Uh, And Caleb Williams. And I haven't been like a huge, like, Caleb Williams is the guy kind of person. But I do think, like, to me, he should absolutely be the front runner after Saturday night. And why he should be the front runner. I'm not somebody that cares that much about stats, okay? There's a lot of empty stats. I'm not an analytics guy. I'm not a numbers guy. I'm a what do I see with my two eyeballs guy. And so I liked Hennon Hooker early because of what he had done to elevate the Tennessee program. I'd argue I still like Hennon Hooker to be in the conversation depending on what happens the next few weeks. We know how important Hennon Hooker was. But to go back to Caleb Williams, what you cannot deny is his importance on this specific USC team. If USC even had like B plus quarterback play right now, I think there's a pretty good chance that they're eight and four or nine and three or whatever. They're certainly not at the level that they are, but you look at Caleb Williams. He has not only put up big stats, but big stats when his team needs them. You look so far this season. On Saturday night, almost 500 yards passing, quote-unquote, only two passing touchdowns. But again, his team needed every one of those yards, and more importantly, they needed every single one of the 48 points that they put up. More specifically, they needed all of Caleb Williams' production over the last four, five, six weeks. 
Have you seen what this defense is allowed? And again, I know I just sort of defended the defense, but they do, in fact, still give up a lot of points. Last five games, they give up 45 on Saturday night to UCLA. Now, a week ago, they played a bad Colorado team, which is currently 1-10 and will probably finish 1-11 because they still play Utah. Only gave up 17 to them. But the three weeks before it, USC gave up 35 points to Cal, 37 points to Arizona, 43 points to Utah. And they went 4-1 and one in that stretch. The only loss was a one-point loss to Utah. And so when I look at Heisman Trophy candidacy, and now Caleb Williams still has two more games left. Got to beat Notre Dame for sure. And I would argue you probably got to beat Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game for me to give you the award. But why it's so impressive is because his team needs every single one of those stats. So to me, Caleb Williams is the Heisman frontrunner right now. The story is incredible. And let me finally say this on USC and more importantly, their head coach, Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley is an awesome coach. When he got hired at USC, it shook up the college football world. I think we were all stunned, and I think we all knew how awesome he could potentially be at USC. I also think what he's doing is a little bit underrated at this point, as weird as it seems. And because when he left, I think everybody's going to sit there and say, well, we knew how good he was. He brought Caleb Williams. I don't care, okay? What I care about is a couple things. One, we've talked about what Oklahoma has been since he left. We already talked about that last week. But more importantly, he took over a bad USC team. And I think there's this thought of, well, you know, I mean, it's USC. How bad could they be? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. They were 4-8 and eight last year. They lost to UCLA by 29 points the day before Lincoln Riley took the job. That same US, UCLA team that they just beat at the Rose Bowl, they lost by 29 points at home at the Coliseum too. They lost by 18 to Oregon State at home. They lost by 14 to a 3-9 and nine Stanford team at home. And so you know those home field advantages that are supposed to matter in college football? USC got destroyed every single time they played basically at the Coliseum last year. And so to fast forward to this year and to have this team in position at 10 and one to potentially play themselves in the playoff, I don't think people are talking about this enough. This is a crazy story. This guy deserves a ton of credit. And it is, again, the way that he's done it with the great offense, with an opportunistic defense. All they ever did was get criticized for the defense down there in Norman. That, that defense is part of the reason for this team's success, even though they're giving up a ton of yards and a ton of points. They make the plays when they need to to win games. And so I know people are going to say, well, he had the transfer portal. Well, everybody had the transfer portal. I don't see a lot of people sitting at 10-1 and one and controlling their own playoff destiny that had access to the portal. Two people will say, oh, well, you know, how good was USC? The USC was terrible. And three, most importantly, don't give me the, well, they're going to get killed by Georgia in the playoff anyway. Well, guess what? A lot of people get killed by Georgia. It doesn't make what Lincoln Riley has done any less incredible. So credit to this guy. I got to give him his props, man. I watch this USC team closely. I live in LA. And more importantly, I'm on air on Fox Sports Radio every Saturday night when they play a lot of their games. And for them to just pick up right where they left off in Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams it truly is incredible. Again, the same Lincoln Riley that Oklahoma fans are going to tell you, oh my goodness, he is the reason that we are so happy that he left. He was the problem in this program. Well, look at Oklahoma. Congrats on beating Oklahoma State. You got bowl eligible on Friday night, on Saturday night. Meanwhile, Lincoln Riley and USC have a path to the playoff heading into Thanksgiving weekend. 
I just want to do take a quick break, come back. We will wrap with some college hoops, some mega games this weekend. Gonzaga played it. Kentucky played at Gonzaga on, on Sunday night. Virginia goes to Vegas and makes a statement. We'll preview the Maui Invitational. We are going to take a quick break and we are going to be right back. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want to wrap with a little bit of college hoops because this is a really fun week in terms of all things college hoops. So this is feast week. This is the week where we get all those tournaments all across the country, all across the globe. Monday, the Maui Invitational starts. We'll actually do a little mini Maui Invitational preview to wrap today's show. And then Tuesday, we'll come back and preview all the other big events. The Battle for Atlantis. Um, We have the PK-85 this year. That is two separate tournaments in Portland to honor Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. So uh, Carolina will be there. Duke will be there. Gonzaga, UConn, Michigan State, Alabama, et cetera. But I want to start tonight's, uh, or I want to wrap today's show talking some college hoops from the weekend, preview the Maui Invitational. And where I want to start is the big game on Sunday night in Spokane, Washington. This was a top five matchup on paper between Gonzaga and Kentucky. And if you watch college football at all this week, oh, this game was hyped to the wide. This game was hyped like a Super Bowl. So credit, listen, you could get mad about ESPN for a lot of different things, but they hyped up this game. There was a lot of excitement. Jimmy Dykes reference to lead the game, that this is a good thing for college basketball as these teams will play each of the next six years. There was just one problem. Kentucky had a complete no-show. They were completely unprepared to play, and Gonzaga won going away. Final score, 88-72. to And so when I think about this game, listen, we're going to get into it. We're going to break it down. But when I look at this game, it is pretty straightforward and it's pretty simple. One thing comes to mind, and one thing comes to mind only when I look at this game. I think a lot of the reason that you guys and girls like me, now you may agree, you may disagree, you may fight with me, you may argue, whatever. But one thing I think about me that you guys and girls respect I always tell it like it is, and I'm not one that always buys into media narratives, right? Like when a bunch of people in the media say one thing, I generally like try to, I don't try to go the other way, but I always try to analyze things critically and not go with groupthink. I bring it up to say for years, I've been told that John Calipari is a terrible coach, doesn't know what he's doing. He's all about recruiting. I have fought that narrative for 10 years, but I got to say Sunday night, Gonzaga, Kentucky, Kentucky was the most was the more poorly coached team and Kentucky just flat out did not look ready to go and they did not look like a well-coached team. And what I think is especially disappointing from the Kentucky perspective is this was the game where you would expect to get the best effort, not only from them, but frankly, from both teams. Like I was genuinely excited about this game because both teams took a loss earlier this week. And so in theory, you'd think that you'd get the best effort. Gonzaga played at Texas on Wednesday. That game was not competitive. So coming home, coming to Spokane, they weren't playing in the kennel, but they were playing in downtown. I figured you'd get a great effort from Gonzaga. And then from Kentucky, 
They lose to Michigan State on Tuesday night in the Champions Classic. They played a game after that on Friday. But my assumption is, okay, Kentucky was not. Kentucky took a loss to Michigan State. We will get their best effort. And it's funny because I defended Kentucky against Michigan State. I thought they had two two chances literally at the end of regulation at the end of overtime to close things out. They did not do it. I thought they were the better team for most of that game, and they just couldn't get a win. That was Tuesday, though. And the problem with Sunday night was this team just came out completely unprepared to play. If you watch this one from the beginning, and even if you didn't, it was almost as if Kentucky did not have a scouting report. Gonzaga was getting wide open looks early. Gonzaga was hitting wide open threes. Gonzaga was pushing the tempo. Kentucky looked a step slow. Gonzaga was getting to all loose balls. And it was just like one team really, really, really wanted to win and not take its second loss. And one team was just like, they're along for the ride. And so that to me is the most disappointing part of this game is that it's one thing if you're Kentucky and you fly across country and you play an elite Gonzaga team, that's one of the great Gonzaga teams that we've ever seen. And they play lights out and they're hitting impossible shots and there's nothing that you can do. That wasn't Gonzaga at all. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I'm recording right now during what is probably Mark Few's press conference. But what I can tell you is I bet Mark Few says that Gonzaga didn't play anything close to its best game. They shot seven of 19 from three, which was 36%, but it was really six of 18. They hit a three, a wide open three with about 20 seconds to go. They essentially shot six of 18 from three, 33%. They had 18 turnovers and a lot of the problems that plagued them throughout the early part of the season plagued them on Sunday. It was just that Kentucky was so bad and so unprepared that it didn't matter. If I was grading Gonzaga or if Mark View was grading Gonzaga, I'd give him a solid B. But it wasn't an A effort. It wasn't an A-plus effort. It wasn't an A-plus-plus effort. Gonzaga was fine. The problem was Kentucky was just not ready to go. In terms of specifics, a couple things stand out. One, Kentucky got out-rebounded by 10 rebounds. Okay, That is absolutely inexcusable. When you have literally one of the greatest rebounders in the history of college basketball, uh, Oscar Shibwe did finish with 15. Overall, Gonzaga had 39. Uh, uh, Kentucky had 29 which means that Oscar Shibway out-rebounded the rest of his teammates, which means that there was a lack of effort, a lack of boxing out, a lack of hustle, a lack of this, a lack of that. The crazy part was this was billed as a matchup between Oscar Shibway and Drew Timmy. Drew Timmy was fine. Drew Timmy was actually really good, but he's another one. He didn't play his best game. We just talked about rebounds. He had seven boards. His teammate, Julian Strother, a 6'7", 6'8", wing, had 14. That's effort. Getting 14 rebounds as a 6'7", 6'8", wing, that's effort. Anton Watson, a guy that I saw a few games ago on the aircraft carrier, really didn't do much of anything, had three points and two rebounds in that game. He goes for a double-double. So when you get three points and two rebounds against Michigan State and then come back with a 10.10 rebound double-double against Kentucky, that's on effort from Kentucky. So one, the effort just wasn't there. Two, the fouls were really inexcusable. 22 overall. Oscar Sheepway had a bunch. I thought it was actually, even though he finished with 20 and 15, a little bit of a sloppy game for him. He takes not one, but two sloppy fouls. But again, part of that is on coaching. Um, I thought it was weird that Gonzaga smartly did not put Drew Timmy on Oscar Sheepway. They let other guys play him. And K Kentucky did the exact opposite. They put Oscar Sheepway on Drew Timmy. If you've ever seen Drew Timmy play, he's kind of a very quick, um, smart player down low. A lot of moves, a lot of this, a lot of that, a lot of around the rim. And he got Oscar Sheepway into foul trouble. 
The funny part was I thought they should have put Jacob Toppin on Drew Timmy from the beginning. They put Jacob Toppin on him late. And it's a complete and Drew Timmy's a complete non-factor the final six or seven minutes. So I Oscar Shibway was in foul trouble. First of all, you, you get out rebounded. Oscar Shibway is now in foul trouble. Um, and I think he's in foul trouble because you put the he you put him on the wrong guy defensively from the beginning. Finally, from the Kentucky perspective, I think the, the, the other obvious thing is they just couldn't hit an open three-point shot. And that one, I know you can't really blame that on John Calipari, but one, the offense, you watch the offense, they're just there wasn't that much there. This has been a common complaint of Kentucky fans for years now. What is the offense? What are they doing? Where are they going? Well, you look at this offense from Kentucky. You have the returning SEC um, assist leader, and you finish the game with 11 assists on 27 made field goals. That's a lot of one-on-one. That's a lot of not you know, helping others, and it showed in the three-point shooting. Six of 25 from three. C.J. Frederick, who was a 48% three-point shooter at Iowa two years ago, finishes one for six. Antonio Reeves finishes two for seven. So this goes back to the Michigan State game. We talked about them that night, but these are supposed to be two elite three-point shooters that finished three of 13. So that one's not on John Calipari, but sort of part of it is, is that they didn't get any clean looks and it was part of the offense. So to me, I'm just going to say it. It falls on the coaching. It falls on the coaching because this is a game on the road. It's not a must win. It's only November. You got plenty of time to figure things out. And for Kentucky, you essentially have a lot of time because while everybody else is going to the PK 80 or the Maui Invitational, you have three weeks before you play Michigan. And then after that, you have another two weeks or two weeks before you play Michigan. And then another two weeks before you play UCLA. So you have plenty of time to get things right. But it's just frustrating that on a night like tonight, it's not that you lose. It's that there is just a complete lack of effort, a complete lack of execution, and really it just looked like you weren't ready to play and there wasn't a game plan going forward. From Gonzaga's perspective, listen, I talked about them on Friday's show. I think they're a good team. I think they're a really solid team. But as I said, when you win by 16 points and Drew Timmy plays well, 22-7, and but I'll tell you, I was at the Aircraft Carrier game again. I know I just said it. And that guy completely took over late in the game. 22 points, 13 rebounds, has 22 and 7 on Sunday. I thought Drew Timmy was good. I thought it was like an A-, minus, but he didn't dominate that game. And so when I look at this game, it just falls on coaching. It falls on preparation. From the Gonzaga perspective, I give them a ton of credit because they were more prepared. They were more hungry. It appears as though they took a very bad loss to Texas very personally and came out much more ready to go. The question for them what is the situation at the point guard spot? And this is something we've been talking about on this podcast since the summer, since April. I've said, I don't know who their point guard is. And it showed up again. Eight assists, 18 turnovers, eight assists on 31 made baskets. So keep that in mind for Gonzaga. They go to the PK 80, they'll 85. They will open with Portland state. Uh, and then they're in a bracket where they could play Duke. They could play Xavier with Sean Miller as the head coach. They could play a lot of different teams, Florida with Todd Golden. Overall, thought it was a good effort from Gonzaga. Liked, again, the effort from the wing players, specifically Julian Strother. I was at the game in Vegas last year against Duke when he had 20 points. He goes for uh, 20 and 14 in this one. Anton Watson, 10 and 10. But when I look at this game itself, I do think it falls on Kentucky. 
they just not, did not look ready to go. All right, let's quickly wrap with the rest of the weekend that was in college hoops. Um, just want to kind of kind of go through some odds and ends from the weekend. I do want to start. There was a great four-team event in Vegas over the course of the weekend. Unfortunately, did not attend. I'll be in Vegas this week for Thanksgiving, but did not attend. But it was a four-team event. Virginia, Baylor on one side of the bracket, Illinois, UCLA on the other side. Those two games were played on Friday night, which led to a championship one on Sunday by Virginia. Virginia takes down Illinois. Virginia leaves Vegas with two wins over top 25 teams. So credit to Virginia. Virginia, a, a really interesting story as I look at this group. One, couple things stand out. One, of course, they're coming off a, a very serious, very sad situation on campus. They talked about it multiple times throughout their two games in Vegas that the team probably, it was probably good for the team to get away from campus for a few days over the course of the week. Um, but this was a team in Virginia. Now, I was intrigued by them. Last year, if you remember, they did not make the NCAA tournament. So they win the title in 2019. 2020 is a weird year, but they would have made the tournament. 2021, they get knocked out of the tournament. Last year, they missed the tournament altogether. But they bring back all five starters. They add a very nice transfer named Ben Vanderplas. And I'll be honest, they were just fantastic over the course of the entire weekend. Take care of Baylor pretty handily on Friday night. Now, if you looked at the final score, it looked a little bit closer than it was. But Virginia really kind of extended that lead to as much as like 20 points at various points in the, in the second half of that game. They hold on for a seven-point win over Baylor. Um, and then they bounce back on Sunday and beat a really good Illinois team that had beaten UCLA on Friday night. In terms of Virginia, listen, I just think they're a really balanced, really talented team. Now, on Sunday, they were led by a kid named Reese Beekman, really talented player. I think he's that next Virginia player that has success at the NBA level. For people who don't follow Virginia basketball religiously, Joe Harris, who plays for the Nets, uh, DeAndre Hunter, who plays for the Atlanta Hawks, Malcolm Brogdon. There are quite a few former Virginia players having success in the NBA. I think this kid, Reese Beekman, is the next one. 17 points on Sunday, uh, balanced effort on Friday in the win over Baylor, but they take the event in Vegas. The other thing that stood out, even though they didn't win on, on Sunday, the team that Virginia played, I was very impressed by Illinois. So Illinois is a team, if you remember each of the last two years, they won the Big Ten regular season title two years ago, or won the Big Ten tournament title two years ago, won the Big Ten regular season title last year. And that was in large part because they had a big man named Kofi Coburn, who has since left. Coming into this year, I was a little bit down on Illinois. Freshman point guard, ironically, a former commit to Kentucky named Sky Clark. And they were really going to rely heavily on two transfers, TJ Shannon, Terrence Shannon from Texas Tech, and uh, Matthew Meyer, who played the last couple years at Baylor. Well, TJ Shannon on Friday night played one of the best games that anyone has played all year, 30 points. It was an awesome environment in Vegas. Illinois fans packed that arena, uh, and Illinois gets the win. And even though they lose on Sunday, I would just say, in the bigger picture, I came away more impressed with this team than I anticipated. I thought this was largely a rebuilding year because the Big Ten was a little bit down. I thought maybe Illinois, you know, sneaks into the tournament as a 7-8 seed. Now, I'll be real. Indiana looks pretty good. Iowa looks interesting. But there's no reason that Illinois might not just be the best team in the Big Ten this year. So even though they lose, they leave one and one. 
In the loser's bracket, Baylor takes care of UCLA. I think the bigger story is UCLA, which was a top 10 team coming in, starting 0-2. I think that really is a reflection more of the fact that they just played two really good teams. But if anything, one thing that did stand out to me was this. Friday night in Vegas, Illinois had the home court advantage, even though UCLA was playing about a four hour, three and a half hour car ride from their campus. Now, UCLA fans will tell you, oh, we had the Saturday game against USC in basketball and football. Nobody's coming out for basketball. All I'm telling you is what stands out to me. What's interesting to me, Illinois had a big game, too. They played Michigan. They brought a ton of fans to Vegas. And, and all I could think of was this is a preview of what is to come UCLA when you go to the Big Ten. When you go on the road, you are going to go do crazy road environments in football and basketball. And when you play, even in your part of the country, when you play home games, those Big Ten fans are going to come to the Rose Bowl, come to Pauley Pavilion, come to watch their teams, and it could get ugly. So UCLA goes 0-2. I'm not really worried about them in the bigger picture, but disappointing effort, disappointing weekend as they lose to Baylor. Baylor, you know, nothing major to take away from them. They win, they win a game by a few on Sunday. They lose a few by, by on, on Friday. Uh, probably could have won on Friday, although, like I said, that game was really one-sided for most of the game. But I, I just like when I look at Baylor, I really like their guards. Adam Flagler, uh, LJ Cryer is healthy. That was the big thing with Baylor last year. If you remember, they started out really good. Last year, they were the defending national champions, but they just dealt with so many different injuries well, today, this weekend, they take care of business. Those guards are healthy, and those guards are looking really, really, really good. A couple other things that happened this weekend. One, Credit Michigan State took care of business on, on Friday night against Villanova. Wild game, but you look at Michigan State. They're now 3-1. and one. They're going to head to that PK-85 event that I just told you about. They open against Alabama, but 3-1. and one, and they've played Kentucky, Villanova, and Gonzaga so far this season. If you watch the aircraft carrier game, you know that uh, Michigan State was a shot away from beating Gonzaga. So while they were a shot away from losing against Kentucky and Villanova, to get through that stretch at 2-1 and one, I think is a total net positive. Indiana goes to Xavier, beats Sean Miller and the Musketeers, 30 points for Trace Jackson Davis. And so if anything, what I would just say is I think this was a net positive, solid week for the Big Ten, a conference that had just two teams in the preseason top 25, one team in the preseason top 15 in Indiana. Well, Indiana wins at Xavier. Michigan State goes two and one against Gonzaga, Kentucky and Villanova. Um, Illinois beats UCLA. Iowa beats Seton Hall at Seton Hall. I think this is a positive for the Big Ten and they look really, really, really good. Before we get out of here, just quickly want to say, if you are a college hoops junkie and if you work from home or you have the opportunity to be in front of a TV over the next three days, enjoy the heck out of the Maui Invitational. So the Maui Invitational, it's always a great event. It starts on Monday in Maui. And when I tell you this is just an absolutely loaded bracket, I mean, this bracket is absolutely loaded. So this is what you need to know about the Maui Invitational. This tournament has Five different teams that are ranked in the AP top 25. Now that's subject to change. There's going to be a new AP poll out on Monday. But as I record here, number nine, Arkansas, number 10, Creighton, number 14, Arizona, number 17, San Diego State, and number 23, Texas Tech, all in 
Maui for the Maui Invitational. It starts at about 2.30 Eastern, 11.30 Pacific. Here's what you need to know. I'm just going to go through the brackets really quick. First game, Creighton-Texas Tech. That is a top 25 matchup. I really like this Creighton Blue Jays squad. I've talked about them a lot. They are a team that the numbers and the metrics don't love, but they bring back four starters off last year's team that gave a real push to Kansas in the second round of the NCAA tournament. They added Baylor Shireman, the point guard, or the, the, the guard, excuse me, from South Dakota State. It came down to Kentucky and Creighton. He chooses Creighton. He's been playing really well so far. 11 points per game, 42% three-point shooting. And overall, Creighton has four different starters who are averaging double figures, and they are shooting about 35% as a team. They play a Texas Tech team, which I'll be honest, I, I actually do like Creighton in the opener. Texas Tech is actually missing their best big man, uh, Far Fardaz Amik, who, of course, was a transfer from Utah Valley. They are 3-0 and coming into this one, but I do think it's going to be a tough ask without him. I do think Creighton wins that game. Second game, it's the Arkansas Razorbacks versus the Louisville Cardinals. Um, this one could be a long one for Louisville. I mean, Louisville just did not do enough in the transfer portal, and Arkansas is just a loaded squad. We spent all offseason talking about Arkansas, the freshmen, the recruiting class. Well, it's actually the transfers and the older players who have been good so far. Ricky Council transfer from Wichita State is averaging 19 points per game. Trevin Brazil, if you have seen the dunk, you this kid's incredible. 14 points, 10 rebounds, one and a half blocks per game. And then Devo Davis, who is the only one of the only two returnees from last year, is averaging 11, 13 points per game, excuse me. So the three upperclassmen are really the ones who are carrying this team. Obviously, the big story here, Nick Smith Jr., top five recruit, has not played yet. The hope is obviously that he will be ready to go in this tournament. Really excited to watch the Hogs. They will play probably about 5 o'clock Eastern time, 2 o'clock Pacific in what should be a fun one. Other half of the bracket, San Diego State, quietly 3-0. and I think this is an event where they can absolutely make a statement. So they have taken care of business early, including a win over BYU at home and a win over Stanford on the road. They are a great defensive team, one of the elite defensive teams in college basketball. They open against Ohio State, a team that so far has won all of its games. But I just think Ohio State's kind of a young team, couple transfers, ice likely from uh, Oklahoma State. Um, uh, you know, you go through Sean McNeil from West Virginia, just kind of a weird team that's kind of in this transition, a bunch of freshmen, a bunch of uh, uh, veteran transfers. And I look at them and I just think they're probably a year or so away from being really interesting. Super young team there. San Diego State plays them in the opener. And then finally, the nightcap. Stay up for the Arizona Wildcats. So Arizona is a team we've talked a lot about over the last couple weeks, the last couple, you know, really the last year or so. But Arizona, remember, had three players drafted in the top 35 of last year's draft. Well, they haven't missed a beat without them. They are averaging 105 points per game. 20 points for Azulas Tubelas, one of their returnees from a year ago. Kirk Kreese, their starting point guard, 16 points, 8 assists per game. They play a fun brand of basketball. They will not tip off on Monday until 10.30 Eastern time, but I think they'll be worth the wait. And then from there, I'm not going to start projecting. I just hope we get Creighton, Arkansas in the semifinals. I hope we get San Diego State, Arizona in the finals. And like I said, at some point later this week, 
One, we will do a Tuesday episode previewing the rest of Feast Week. But I do hope at some point later this week we can do a recap show where we talk about everything that happened because the Maui Invitational is fascinating. And the one thing that stands out, all of the teams there all play a slightly different style. So whether you're an Arizona fan, an Arkansas fan, San Diego State, Creighton, Texas Tech, whoever, you're going to see multiple teams that play multiple ways, and I think it's only going to help you going forward. With that said, I think it is time for me to get out of here. Before we do, I want to remind you, make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Oh, and if you want to do me one quick favor, Go to that YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button. We're on the road to 15K. We'd love to get to 15K by Thanksgiving Day. Uh, we're at about 14, eight and a half right now. So about 14,850 or so. So any help you guys and girls could give would be very much appreciated. That said, long show, fun show, Monday show, college football, college basketball crossover. But it is time for me to get out of here. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, UF head. I'll be back on Tuesday. New episode, Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.